Well, everybody turn to your neighbor and say, I hoped you would be here today. Turn to your second choice and say, your hair looks nice. Your hair looks, we're going to speak encouraging words this morning here at church. We're going to speak some life. Um, if I haven't got to meet you, uh, Pastor Clayton mentioned, I'm Matt Cordova. I get the privilege and the honor of being the youth pastor. And I love it. It's so much fun because youth kids are a little crazy. You know what I mean? I like dealing with the like middle school kids. Here's why I like middle school kids. They're not too cool for school. You know what I'm saying? They're a little bit nerdy. So they want to try stuff out. So they're trying to find their footing. High school kids, they're like, all right, bro, that, that's lame. Like, it's for real. I always tell people preaching to high school kids is so much harder. Because so, if, if you preach a bad message to teenagers, they're going to tell you to your face. Hey, man, what'd you get from today? That was horrible. Like, <laughs> all right, well, I'll pray for you. All right, anyways, so me and my wife, we are so excited to be here. We're excited to be a part of the City Church. Um, I want to start off by asking a question. Is there anybody here good with tools? Don't be ashamed. Raise your hand. It's okay. We, we are uh, an engagement type church. Only one person is good with tools. Okay, I see how it is. Uh, anybody, anybody like to build things? Anybody into that kind of stuff? Okay, how, now we got more hands showing up. More people like to build things than they are good with tools. That's dangerous if we're going to put that together, right? Is there anybody here that is like anti-manual? You're the kind of person, you go buy something, you're like, I'm going to put this together, but this booklet that they put in the box is useless. I don't need this. Did anybody marry that person? Yeah? Oh, now well, <laughs> there's all the hands. All right. Well, let me tell you something a little bit about me. I am the most like, I am terrible with tools. Horrible. If I pull out a drill, my family goes into earthquake mode. They're like hiding underneath the table. It is a scary thing. Like I have a hammer and I've got a drill at home because that's the manly thing to do, right? I saw it on home improvement, right? That's what I got. But I'm not good at building things. And, and you know, we've got two little boys. We've got a four-year-old and we've got a one-year-old. And apparently I didn't pay attention growing up because I didn't realize that when you have kids, you've got to put stuff together. Let's start with a crib. Your baby's got to have a place to sleep, right? Your boy used the manual. Otherwise, it took me four days, right? Uh, so here's my system. I've got a system that when I buy something and I'm going to put it together, I, first thing I do is I do grab my drill and then I give everybody their helmets so they feel safe. But then I get um, all of the tools and I get all of the pieces and I love that they like alphabetize the pieces. If you've bought anything from Amazon, you know what I'm talking about, right? They alphabetize the pieces. So I set each piece out uh, by its letter. So that way, when I get to that part in the manual, I know exactly what piece I'm supposed to grab. Because the truth is, like, if we're going to be completely honest, nobody wants to be that dad that's got eight bolts left over and like the swing set is tilting. You know what I mean? Like, honey, are you sure that's what it's supposed to look like? Uh, you're just standing on uneven ground. It's fine. It's going to be great. Right? Nobody wants to be that. Here's why I do that. There's nothing more frustrating and time consuming than having to go back because I missed a step or I missed, uh, I used the wrong bolt because I didn't understand its purpose. Anybody ever been there? Where you gotta go back, you gotta take the whole thing apart, start all over. See, missing something that matters can slow us down and accomplishing what we're trying to do. Can we all agree on that? And I think the same is true in our faith. Missing things that matter can slow us down in the progression of our growth and our walk with God. And we're actually going to see a whole lot of that in today's text. So if you've got a Bible, open it up to Luke chapter 9, verse 37. If you don't, that's okay. It'll be up on our screen, up on our TV, 
we also encourage you to follow along, along in our app. You can take notes there. It works great on Apple devices. I'm not sure if you got an Android. It's okay. Any Android users in here? Okay, I know who to pray for. <laughs> just kidding. Uh, just while you're there, some background. Last week, Pastor Clayton talked about the mountain of transfiguration. This is a pivotal moment, right? It says that, they, that Jesus was up there with Elijah and Moses, and they were talking about his exodus. Everybody say exodus. Exodus. That's a big thing. They saw his majesty. They saw him. The word is transfigure or transform. And, and Peter would describe it in 1 Peter. as like, man, we got to see his majesty. And let's read. This is what's that's just happened. After the transfiguration, it says the next day after they had come down a mountain, a large crowd met Jesus. A man in the crowd called out to him, teacher, I beg you to look at my son, my only child. An evil spirit keeps seizing him, making him scream. It throws him into convulsions so that he foams at the mouth. It batters him and hardly ever leaves him alone. I begged your disciples to cast out the spirit, but they couldn't do it. Jesus said, you faithless and corrupt people. How long must I be with you and put up with you? Then he said to them, bring your son here. As the boy came forward, a demon knocked him to the ground and threw him into a violent convulsion. But Jesus rebuked the evil spirit and healed the boy. Then he gave him back to his father. Awe gripped the people as they saw his majestic display of God's power. While everyone was marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, listen to me and remember what I say. The son of man is going to be betrayed into the hands of his enemies. But they didn't know what he meant. Its significance was hidden from them, so they couldn't understand it. And they were afraid to ask him about it. So let's, let's kind of build this scene with you. I want you to imagine really what's going on. Um, if you're Peter, James, and John, you've just seen this amazing thing. Like you've just seen God transform. You saw the glory of the Lord kind of shine from inside of Jesus. You saw Moses and you saw Elijah. Like these are two really important people in the Jewish faith, like in their context. So this is kind of a big deal. And they come down the mountain, and as soon as they come down, there's a crowd there. Now, we got to ask the reason. Why is the crowd there? Most of the time, the crowd is there because of what Jesus can do, right? The crowd isn't following him for who he is. They're following for him for the miracles that he's done. Let's think about some of the ones that he's, he, he healed people right before he fed the 5,000. And then he took a lunchbox that they took from a little kid and turned it into a mass feeding, like a giant buffet, like Jesus has this huge following because of what he can do, but there's a, a specific encounter that Luke wants us to pay attention to. It says, out of, the, out of the crowd, a man cried out and he says, Jesus, would you look at my only son? There's an evil spirit that just causes him to convulse and to go crazy. And, and there's three things I want you to kind of really see about uh, this, this dad. One, there's a lot on the line for this guy. Like sons were a big deal in this culture. Why? Because that was the extension of our legacy. That was the extension of our family line. So for him, he sees his future, his future family life on the line. Can you imagine the desperation within this father? Any of us have kids in here? If it was our kids, can you imagine the desperation that would come out of us? The second thing is he doesn't ask Jesus to heal him. Did y'all see that? He said, Jesus, will you look at him? Can't, will you see him? What's he doing? He's hoping that Jesus sees his condition and moves with compassion. Compassion. Now, 
If we remember some of the miracles that Jesus has done up till now, it says that many times he was moved by what? Compassion. When Jesus fed the 5,000, if you remember Brandon's message when he preached on that, it says that he looked at them and saw that they were a sheep without a shepherd and was moved with what? Compassion. He wasn't, at, he's, just, he's just giving his son, present Jesus, would you look at him? Because he thinks the compassion and the love inside of Jesus would cause him to move. And lastly, he's already tried to get his son healed, right? He said, I, I brought him to your disciples. This would be the remaining nine that weren't on the mountain. Can you imagine being those guys? Hey, Peter, James, John, we're going to go up here. I want you guys, you guys can hang out. <laughs> and what they missed out on? You mean like the transfiguration, this awesome event? Oh, well, you guys are the B team. We'll call you in here in a second, right? But so the B team, we'll just call them that just for the reference of the message, is down and they get an opportunity to show how good God is. This father brings his son to these guys and he, he's trying to get them to cast out this demon. And here's the thing, they couldn't do it. Now, if you're like me, I like to ask a whole bunch of questions. So the first thing going through my mind is why? Why couldn't they do it? And here's the reason why I asked that question. If you remember at the beginning of the chapter, uh, verses one and two of chapter nine, it says that Jesus gives them all authority to heal, to cast out demons, and to preach the kingdom of God. And right before Jesus feeds the 5,000, they come back and they tell him all the exciting things that they've done. Guess what they did? They healed people, they casted out demons, and they preached the kingdom of God. So my question is, why couldn't they do it now? What's happened in the last eight, I think it's about eight days. What's happened in the, in the last eight days to where they went from having the faith to do everything that Jesus said that they could do to all of a sudden not having it? I think just somewhere along the line, it just faded. Maybe it was the fact that Jesus wasn't next to him, but then I think in, chapter, in verses one and two, he sends them out. So Jesus isn't next to him. But when they left in, in, in verses one and two, it was fresh that Jesus had just said, hey, I'm giving you this authority. Maybe they forgot what God told them or what Jesus told them that they could do. It, it, has anybody ever been there before? Like God uses you to do something amazing in, in somebody's life and you celebrate it, you're excited about it. Maybe you've told your friends about it. And then seven days later, something happens. And it's like the faith that you had just wasn't there. I mean, I think we can relate a whole lot to the disciples, A team or B team. And, and, and we also know this. We know from, I think it's Matthew's gospel, one of the other gospels, that uh, the father had unbelief. And can you imagine why he would though, right? He, he's bringing his son to Jesus because he knows Jesus can do this. It's already gone out. The, Jesus has done, casted out tons of demons by this point. He's bringing his son to Jesus. Jesus is up on the mountain, and these guys have been following him, right? Disciples, they're supposed to imitate him. They're, you know what I mean? They've been learning from him. And the guys that follow the dude can't do it. So by the time that Jesus comes down the mountain, can you imagine, like, being a father, asking somebody to do something they couldn't, how much faith would have disappeared? And Jesus asked him, he goes, hey, do you believe that I can do this? I love this part. He says, well, I do believe but can you help me with my unbelief? I do believe Jesus, but there's a part of me that's just struggling. There's a part of me that's just like iffy, like I don't know. And I love this 
Because Jesus still heals the boy, even though unbelief is present. Y'all hear that? Jesus still, he didn't look at the father and say, hey, listen, man, if you'd have believed more, I'd heal him. But you, you know, you're telling me that you have unbelief. I don't know if I can move in this situation. He didn't say, hey, man, I wish if you'd have been reading the Jewish Bible, the Old Testament more, I'd have, you, maybe you'd have more faith. He didn't push him to his devotion and practice. What he did, though, what the father did that was amazing that I think we can all learn from is that the father gave his unbelief to the right person. Right. Jesus is standing there. He knows Jesus is the solution. And this is so relevant to today. Everything that we're going through in our country, everything we're going through in our families and our city and all that other stuff. Jesus is the solution. But there are some times in our life where we have unbelief in our life. And the right place to put it is not on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram or Snapchat or whatever social media, TikTok. The right place to give your unbelief is to Jesus. He gives his unbelief to Jesus and Jesus still moves. And then look at what verse 43 says. This is amazing. It says, all gripped the people as they saw this majestic display of God's power. All gripped the people. Another translation says that all gripped them as they saw his greatness. Everybody say greatness. They saw his greatness. It's the same word that Peter uses when he talks about Jesus in the transfiguration. So there's, there's three things really in today's message that I don't think we need to miss. The first one is this. Don't miss his greatness. Don't miss his greatness. Listen, church, we can't lose our awe and wonder of God. We can't. Do you remember what it was like when you first said yes to Jesus? Do you remember the excitement that you had? Knowing that, listen, this isn't the end of the road for me, but the end of the road is in the kingdom of God with Jesus himself. You know what, you, can I tell you why I love youth ministry? When a youth kid gets saved, you know what they're gonna do? They're gonna, they're, they're predetermined in their mind, they're gonna come and lead every one of their friends back to Jesus. They have such a powerful encounter with God that they're not satisfied with it stopping at them. My question is, as we followed God over time, has that all disappeared? Has that all just come into practice? Oh, you can practice and miss out on the person of God. You can go through the motions and forget the God that you're serving and then forget the God that you love, right? It's all about God. I think it's our awe of, his, of him, his promises, and his presence, realistically, that give us the strength to keep moving forward. When we realize how great God is, David did it. Psalms chapter 8. We, we did uh, Psalms not too long ago. So he starts off, God, how great is your name? How majestic is your name? And when I look at everything that you've created, the mountains, the stars, and the sky, he's like, what is man? He said, but you've crowned us with glory and honor. You know I mean, David is, is lost in the awe and wonder of how great and powerful and good God is. I think of Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6 is one of my favorite chapters. The very first thing is Isaiah has this, this vision of God. And he says he's in kind of the temple. And it says the train of God's robe fills the whole temple. Why is that important? As kings would win battles, they would cut off the train of the opposing king and tie it to their, or sew it to their train. So the longer the train of a robe of a king, the more victorious he was. The train of his robe fills the temple. Come on, how many of y'all, when's the last time you reminded yourself that we serve and chase and pursue the God who's never lost? 
That's the first thing that he sees. But then he sees these angels that are surrounding the throne and they sing, they sing the same song over and over again. I know some of us don't like singing the same chorus like three times in the same song, right? The, from the beginning of time to the end of time, they're singing the same song. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. And this is how loud, it, it's not like they've been singing it and now they're just kind of like, hey bro, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of God Almighty. I know you told me that yesterday. Holy, holy, holy. No, the Bible says that they yell it. They shout it back and forth so loud that it shakes the temple. Like, I think they feel and see the greatness of God that they're like, oh, holy, holy, holy. It's the Lord God Almighty. And the other guy's like, oh, holy, holy, holy. Man, what would happen if that kind of excitement rose up in the church? If like going to church wasn't about filling the seats and just sitting there and hearing a message and then going home and eating lunch, but it was like, bro, guess what God did today? Guess what he told me? Guess what prayer I saw him answer? Woohoo! he's so good. I think we can't miss out on the greatness of God. And if we do, man, we're missing so much. And that while we're here as we celebrate the goodness of God, the fact that he loved humanity so much, he sent his son. When that message becomes old news instead of good news, we're in trouble. When the message of the cross and Jesus being alive and seated at the right hand of the father is old news, we've lost our awe and wonder of the greatness of God. But okay, then the story continues. Because it says, while they were amazed, Jesus makes another death prediction, right? And, and the Bible says this about the disciples. It says that they didn't understand and it was hidden from them. So there's two things at play. One, there's comprehension. And two, God is playing a role in hiding it from them. Why do I think he's hiding it from them? Because they would try to get in the way. I think we'll dive into that here in just a second, okay? Why wouldn't they understand? Well, think about it. How could somebody, they're, they're marveling at his greatness, right? They're astonished, amazed by how great he is. Why, how could somebody so great die a humiliating death is what's going through their mind. Like, God, look at how awesome you are. The cross was the most humiliating and embarrassing way to die. I don't know if that's ever, like if you've ever thought about that. The Romans had perfected it to scare people away from, from treason and insurrection. It was their way of flaunting their authority. They wanted to embarrass the people that were on the cross. So how could somebody so great die such a humiliating death? And Jesus, you, it's the crowds here celebrating you. How, what people would turn you in? You mean, the, the people love you. What do you mean the people are gonna turn you in? Can you, can you see why they wouldn't understand? Can, this is, I think the same is so true for us today, though. I think there's so many times in our life where things happen and we get frustrated because we don't understand what's going on. And God's like, no, hold on. I want you to play this out so that you can see that my ways really are greater than your ways. And my thoughts really are greater than your thoughts. You know what I mean? How many times, anybody got, anybody got children, toddlers, toddlers? Have you ever um, had your toddler ask you for something and you told them no because at the end of the day you were gonna give them something better? And then they throw a fit right there? Hello, modern Christians. <laughs> it's the same thing with God. 
We pray for something, we do something, and a lot of times he may tell us no because his ways are greater than our ways and his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And we get upset because it didn't happen on our timeline the way that we saw it. And God's like, no, if you would just walk this out, you'll see the greater plan as it, as it becomes revealed. If you'll just see it through. So right after, after this, Jesus talks about his betrayal, and I want you to see where the disciples go. It says, then his disciples began arguing about which of them was the greatest. But Jesus knew their thoughts, so he brought a child to his side, and then he said to them, anyone who welcomes a little child like, the, like this on my behalf welcomes me. And anyone who welcomes me also welcomes my father who sent me. Whoever is the least among you is the greatest. John said to Jesus, Master, we saw somebody using your name to cast out demons, but we told him to stop because he's not part of our crew. But Jesus said, don't stop him. Anyone who is not against you is for you. And as the time drew near for him to ascend to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. He sent messengers ahead to a Samaritan village to prepare for his arrival. But the people of the village did not welcome Jesus because he was on his way to Jerusalem. So when James and John saw this, they said to Jesus, Lord, should we call down fire from heaven to burn them up? But the Lord turned and rebuked them. So they went to another village. Now, you want to talk about missing the point, right? Jesus has just told them that he's about to be get betrayed. And what's the very first thing that the disciples do? Argue about who's the greatest. You know what I mean? They're like, Jesus, it's hidden from, you know, I think I'm greater than Peter. I'm going to write about it one day. We're going to have a foot race. It's going to make the Bible, right? You know what I mean? They're arguing about who is the greatest, you know? And, and what's really interesting about this whole segment is Jesus doesn't rebuke them for that. Jesus never, did you see in that text where it said Jesus turned to them, he rebuked them and said, listen, don't desire to be great. It didn't happen. But what Jesus does is really interesting. He never rebuked them for greatness. He just re redefined it. He redefined greatness. Because see, for these guys, greatness was about the best seat, having the best seat at the house, in, in, at the table, right? It was about having the highest status. It was about being the most influential. It was about having the, the best gifts. Or if we're going to make it relevant, it was about most followers, shares, likes, and retweets, right? But Jesus, like in Jesus on more than one occasion said, listen, that's not what greatness is about. And Mark, he'll have another encounter with him where they argue about who's on the greatest. So what does he do in this situation? Well, it says that he brings a child. And he says, hey, whoever welcomes this boy welcomes me or welcomes God, right? And then he ends with whoever is the least is the greatest. Well, what do you mean by that, Jesus? Well, let's think about it. In Jewish culture, any time they thought that any time spent with a, with a child was a waste of time. Right. It wasn't that he brought a child because of their dependency or their humility. It was literally that they were the lowest. They were at the bottom end of the totem pole. They were literally the lowest in the society. Right. They didn't see children as anything until they could contribute to the workforce, which was about 12 years old. So for Jesus, this is something we all need to see. For Jesus, greatness is not status. Greatness is service. Listen, that's the opposite of what the world says, right? The world tells us greatness is you get to the top. And oftentimes what happens for us to get to the top is we often have to step on people, climb, crawl, all this other stuff. What was the two greatest commandments? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your what? Neighbor? Then if loving my neighbor is one of the greatest commandments that Jesus has ever given us, then stepping on my neighbor can't be leading to greatness. 
In Mark, when he talks about it, he says, listen, if you want to be the greatest in the kingdom, you'll take the place of a servant. And if you want to be first, you'll take the place of a slave. To him, greatness was not about status. To him, it was about service. So let's ask this question. How committed to that message was Jesus? Right? Jesus, if you're going to teach it, how committed to you are how, how, how committed are you to this message of service? Well, when you go to the Last Supper, Jesus has this moment where he cleans the disciples' feet. First and foremost, he took the place of the, 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 the lowest slave right there. The lowest slave in the house cleaned the feet of the people, of the guests that were there. Plus, people got messed up feet. Like, I don't know if y'all looked at feet here recently. They're dirty. They stink, especially if you got teenagers, right? So Jesus takes this place, but now let's take it a step further. It's not, not only did he take the place of the lowest slave, let's ask, whose feet did he clean? Well, the disciples. Okay, well, let's be a little bit more specific. He cleaned Peter's feet before Peter would deny him, and he knew he would do that. He cleaned Thomas's feet before Thomas would doubt him. He knew he would do that. Oh, here's the big one. He cleaned Judas's feet before he betrayed him. He knew he would do that. How committed was Jesus to that message? He gave his life for it. And he's calling us to do the same thing. He doesn't rebuke them for pursuing greatness. He just says, hey, greatness isn't what the world shows you it is. Greatness is not about getting the highest seat, getting paid the most, having the best title, the biggest job, the, even the biggest church. Greatness is about serving. It's about serving. So then John shows up after this conversation. And he's like, Jesus, we saw somebody who's not a part of our crew casting out demons. If I was Jesus, I'd have been like, well, that's more than y'all did earlier. You know what I mean? They could, I needed you to cast out this demon from this father. They couldn't do it, you know. But Jesus replies with this. He says, if they're not for us or if they're not against us, then they're for us. Jesus isn't here to create an elitist group. Can we, can we come to that understanding and alignment with that? Jesus isn't here to create an elitist group. What is he doing? He's creating a community of people who would expand his kingdom. In fact, the fact that somebody was able to cast out demons in Jesus' name that wasn't a part of his crew, I think would have been exciting to Jesus because it shows, and it's a testimony that he's got followers, that people have bought into his kingdom message and they're, they're walking it out. But then things start to change. The whole narrative of the book of Luke is about to shift, right? Because it says that Jesus starts his exodus, to Jerusalem. Well, what's in Jerusalem? The cross. So Jesus is about to start making his way back to the cross and they're about to go through Samaria. And when they go through Samaria, they, the Bible says that they reject him because he's going to Jerusalem. The reason for that is the Samaritans and Jews, there's a lot of racial tension there, right? If you've ever wondered where racism is in the Bible, this is a perfect example. The Jews saw the Samaritans as half-breeds, they, I mean, they, they intermarried with other cultures. And so, and it got so tense that like when Jews would travel, they would go around the country of Samaria. So Jesus is like, no, we're going to go through Samaria. Think about the story of him meeting the woman at the well. He says, I've got to go through Samaria. I've got to. Why? Because the Samaritans needed the message too. But Jesus comes through Samaria and he gets rejected. And this fires James and John up. They're like, Jesus, should we call down fire? Anybody ever want to call down fire on somebody? <laughs> Too many hands went up. We need to pray. <laughs> this is a reference to 2 Kings where Elijah is being pursued and 
They come to arrest him and he says, listen, if I'm a man of God, then let fire come down and get you guys. Well, he was a man of God. A couple people got eaten. But Jesus rebukes them. And I I want you to see something. This is the third rebuke in today's text. So the first thing I showed you was don't miss his greatness. The second thing I think we need to pay attention to is don't miss his mission. Don't miss his mission. We need to understand the goal of, of life is not our greatness. In fact, I'm a big believer in purpose, that each and every one of us have a purpose. But I also believe that your purpose is not even about you. Your purpose is about everybody that you were supposed to come across. Your purpose is to be a light, right? That's, you're the light of the world, the city on a hill. It ends with let your good deeds shine so that the people can see and glorify your father. That's purpose, right? It's not about our greatness. It's not about our status. It is about our service. The truth is this. We go up by being down. We go up by taking the lowest place. But also his plan is for the church to teach the kingdom of God and to walk in the authority that he's given us. The church. Everybody say the church. The church. Capital C church. It's not our church versus their church. We came from a town in Panhandle. And in this town, there's our church, and across the street to the north was the Baptist church, and across the street to the east was the Methodist church, and that corner was the most divisive corner in Panhandle. And it was like all of us were missing it, because it wasn't about who, how many people we can get in our seats. It, it should have been like, hey, how can we come together to make a difference in our community? How can we come together and reach those who don't know who you are here in our, in our location? You know, I I talked to the students about this this week. You know, last week we looked at the text where Jesus says, hey, who do you say that I am? Peter responds. He says, you're the Messiah. Jesus, I imagine Jesus getting excited. He's like, hey, you didn't get this on your own. The Holy Spirit revealed this to you. This is what Matthew says. And he says, your name was Simon. I'm going to call you Peter. And upon this rock, I'm going to build my church. It's the first time the word church is used in the New Testament. It's the Greek word ekklesia. Guess what ekklesia is not? A building. Ecclesia is, this is, this is, this is just a structure. This is a place to meet and to celebrate. The church is who's in the seats. The church is a unified people under the name of Jesus. That's what the church is. And then this is really interesting, but there's a long ending to his rebuke. And Jesus says this, he says, the son of man didn't come to destroy lives, but he came to save them. Why is that interesting? You can't save somebody from something unless they need saving from it. So what did he come to save them from? Eternity separated from him. John 3.16, right? We all know that for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whoever should believe in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. John 3.17 is probably one of my favorite verses. It says, the son of man did not come to condemn the earth, he came to save it. What is Jesus' mission? It was not for us to have the highest status, but for us to have the greatest service and for us to come together and preach the kingdom of God. Why? So that people would know who he is and know his goodness and his greatness and be saved and have a safe place. The the last group of texts that we're going to look at starts in verse 57. So as they were walking along, someone said to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. But Jesus replied, foxes have dens to live in and birds have nests, but the son of man has no place to even lay his head. He said to another person, come follow me. 
The man agreed, but he said, Lord, first let me go bury, return home and bury my father. But Jesus told them, let the spiritually dead bury their own dead. Your duty is to go and preach the kingdom of God. Another said, yes, Lord, I will follow you, but first let me say goodbye to my family. But Jesus told him, anyone who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is not fit for the kingdom of God. Now, these are three important conversations. What's really interesting is two people tell Jesus they're going to follow him, and one, Jesus invites. So the first guy comes up, he says, Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. So think about this. Where is he going? Jerusalem. For what? To die. Where's he going through? Samaria. And what are they doing? They're rejecting him. When Jesus replied, foxes have dens and, and, and birds have nests, but I have nowhere to lay my head, that is very real for him. That is super real for him. There's no place for him to stay. Why? Because he's being rejected. This kind of shows us that faith isn't always comfortable. The second guy Jesus invites and he's like, yeah, I'll do it. But let me go back and bury my father. Jesus says, let the dead bury the dead. Your job is to go and preach the kingdom of God. Reading that initially, it sounds super harsh. Come on, Jesus, I'm just trying to go take care of my dad. I'll tell you what theologians believe. The theologians believe his dad wasn't actually dead yet. He wanted to go back because when his father passed away as a son, you get an inheritance. So it's this whole, whole mentality of Jesus, I'll follow you, but I'm gonna follow you after I get my stuff. I'm gonna follow you after I get my inheritance. I'm gonna follow you after I do what I wanna do, after I live how I wanna live. He see why Jesus would say that. The last one says, hey, I'm gonna follow you, but let me go say bye. And Jesus' reply was, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. What's going on here? Well, if he goes back, there's a chance his parents are gonna talk him out of it. But the other thing is, can you imagine trying to plow a field and looking backwards? But let me make it relevant. I want you to try to drive, don't do this actually, don't try it. But can you imagine trying to drive down the road, looking in your rearview mirror the whole time? How effective are you gonna be at it? How good are you gonna be at it? Or if we're gonna be real, how committed are you to it? You mean, Jesus saying is, there's, there's no going back. The kingdom of God is advancing and, and we're gonna go. If you're gonna follow me, we're gonna go. And it's about to get ugly and then it's gonna get good again, but we're gonna go. So the first thing I told you is don't miss his greatness. Then I told you don't miss his mission. The last one, don't miss his calling. Don't miss his calling. In this last text, we see that following Jesus is not always comfortable, physically or financially, right? And we see that we can't turn back. We can't be wishy-washy. We gotta be all in. But even though those things are true, I believe it's always worth it. In Acts, Jesus says this. He says that the Holy Spirit's gonna come on you. You're gonna have power. And he says, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. The Greek word, which is the original language of the New Testament for witness, is martis. It's where we get the word martyr. Martyr. You know what a martyr is? 
Somebody who believes so heavily in a message or a movement that they're willing to give their life for it. He's called us to be that. To, to, to believe in Jesus is to say, Jesus, I believe in you so much. I believe in your kingdom so much that I'm willing to lay my life down for it. No matter the cost, no matter the opposition, no matter how uncomfortable it gets, God, you're enough. And if we were to look at the lives of the disciples, all of them except for Judas died for this message. And they died for this kingdom. They went through persecution. They went through rejection. They went through imprisonment. They went through pain. And the truth is this, I believe they would all say it was worth it. Paul, when he's writing his very last letter to somebody he loves, it's a boy named Timothy who leads the church in Ephesus. This is what he tells him. He knows he's about to die. And he doesn't write, hey, I don't know how committed you should be. And that's not what he says. He doesn't say, bro, you determine whatever feels good to you. He doesn't say, hey, figure out how to make it work with your culture. No, he says, don't ever be ashamed to tell others about God. How committed was Paul to this message? That even when he knows he's about to die, he tells his protege, listen, don't stop. Don't stop telling them. Don't give up and make it ugly. But listen, we have a message of life. We have a message of hope. And what message is needed more than today, than, than right now, than a message of life and hope? The world where we see people running around just following what feels right, what sounds good. We don't know where to turn. We don't know where to look. I'll tell you where to look. Jesus. His message is still the same. He's still the same person yesterday, today, and tomorrow. His love is unshifting. It's unchanging. <laughs> and he's calling each and every one of us. We sang it. Oh, come to the altar. Your father's arms are open wide. Forgiveness was bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. That's an open invitation to anybody who would accept it. It's an open invitation to humanity that he's calling all of us to him. Why? Because God so loved the world. Because he so loved the world. So what's my challenge? What, what's your takeaway? One, man, I pray that we would never forget how great God is. For many of us, that's our testimony. God's greatness and God's moving in our life. Like even in the hard moments, this is the truth. God has never turned his back on you. Even when he sounds silent, he's not absent. He's there. So, so maybe in the morning, it's like, God, I'm, I'm in awe of who you are. Thank you so much for loving me. Thank you for your commitment. Thank you for your sacrifice. Thank you for everything that you've done. Man, I believe this. The mountains are amazing. The ocean is, is awesome, but we don't have to go to a coast or to a mountain range to see the goodness of God. It's there every time you wake up, every time you look at your kids, or you see your spouse, or you see your home, like the goodness of God is everywhere. The second one is don't miss his mission. It's not about our status, it's about our service. This is the truth. God has given each and every one of us a gift. And the way that we participate is we use our gifts to point people to him. If God's giving you the gift to speak encouraging words, then man, you, you let that mouth run. 
You talk, you speak life into every situation. You use social media life all over the place. If God's giving you the, the gift of hospitality, you show hospitality with every ounce of your being. If God's giving you the ability to just love people, if he's giving you the ability to serve, then go serve. Sign up for our serve day, subtle tag. You mean? But use whatever God's given you. Why? Well, it's our, it's our church verse. You're the light of the world, a city on a hill. Nobody lights a light and puts it underneath a basket. Said so you elevate it so that it uh, brings light to all the room. And he says, let your good deeds shine so that people will worship and glorify God. When you serve, you advance his mission. When you use your gifts for something beyond yourself, you advance his mission. The last one is don't miss his calling. Don't miss his calling. The greatest invitation that's ever been extended was Jesus walking by and saying, hey, come follow me. Come follow me. Maybe today, today's a reminder that, man, I said yes to that. I said yes. And last week we talked about denying yourself and carrying your cross daily. Maybe today's a refresher like, hey, I gotta lay myself down because the kingdom that I carry is unshakable because the kingdom that I carry has life and it's got hope. But maybe you're here today and that's the story that you're hearing is Jesus is walking by you. You've never said yes, you've been wondering who this, this Jesus is, but he's the son of God. And he came and he died in our place because we can't, the truth is we can't earn righteousness. We can't earn salvation. But God so loved the world that he sent his son to pay the price for us. That son is alive, seated at the right hand of the father, and he looks and extends this to everybody else. Hey, come follow me. Come follow me. I just want you to bow your heads, let's pray. So dear Heavenly Father, God, we just thank you for today. God, I thank you for your goodness. And, and, and I thank you that even in your rebukes, we can find hope. And even in your rebukes, we can find life. So God, I pray that we would buy, that we would always remember how great you are, how you've moved in our life, God, and, and that we would remember and share our testimonies that, that you, the reason that we're here for many of us is, is you moving. The reason that we're here and we've gone through some of the things, the only reason we've succeeded is because you were with us. God, and I pray that the, the message and the goodness of God would never get old that it would never become old news. God, I pray that we would buy into your mission. Instead of trying to get as many followers as we can get, we, we, that we would take the role of, of service and see, man, how many different people can I point to you by using my gifts? God, and I pray that we would remember your calling, that if there's somebody in here that doesn't know you, that today would be the day that they just say yes. That God, I give you my life, I see you as the son of God and I know that I've sinned, I know that I've messed up and I can't earn my righteousness. So I thank you for the gift of salvation through your son. God, come and continue to move in this place. It's in your name we pray and everybody said.